from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Washington Post. This is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July second. Today, escalating protests in Hong Kong, new debates over the phrase concentration camp, and why your senses go haywire on an airplane. For weeks, people in Hong Kong have been protesting against the government. These demonstrations peaked on Monday, the 22nd anniversary of Hong Kong's transfer from Britain to China. Police felt that they would conduct a sweeping area and they have shut off massive uh, rounds of tear gas. They've pushed back with riot gear uh, and, and sort of created scenes of chaos here after, after protesters took over the building. Shibani Matani is the Post's Hong Kong correspondent. Late Monday night, she was reporting on the protest when police began firing tear gas. And people have just told us to clear the area because they say more rounds of tear gas are coming uh, and have told us to, to move away. So that's, that's what we're doing right now. Shabani says that the anniversary usually coincides with peaceful protests. But this year was different. Angry protesters stormed the legislative building in Hong Kong. Things got really dramatic and, and really tense. Um, what happened was a group of protesters started trying to smash into the Legislative Council building, which is effectively Hong Kong's parliament. And so they started ripping the metal gates down. They started smashing glass windows and, and glass doors. Things were really tense. I mean, I, I don't think we, we sort of knew where things were, were going to turn and how they were going to end up. For now, the protesters have cleared out. But Shabani says that they're still demanding a halt to the bill that would allow Hong Kong to extradite people to mainland China. The extradition bill is what sparked the demonstrations in the first place, and it's become a rallying cry. So I think I think people see the extradition bill um, as something that would end a firewall that keeps Hong Kong's legal system uh, apart from from that in mainland China and keeps it one of the most respected legal systems in the world. Um, but I think that what has happened here is that the extradition bill has unearthed a whole lot of sentiments um, that have been brewing and, and growing in Hong Kong steadily over the past few years. So in, in 2014, uh, there were massive protests in Hong Kong, a uh, 79-day occupation of, of the streets here that demanded greater autonomy over Beijing. And I think uh, that is still very fresh in people's mind, and they see Hong Kong steadily and steadily being you know, co-opted into, into the mainland. And, and they don't like that, and they don't want that. And beyond that, I mean, Hong Kong has a host of social issues and, and problems. Um, it is one of the most expensive cities in the world where property is very unaffordable to many of the young people here. So I think, you know, with all these issues, Hong Kong people basically see the government as not working for them, but instead pushing through stuff like the extradition bill, which no one wants and, and no one asked for, and actually people really, really despise, instead of working for the, for the people of Hong Kong. Uh, and I think those those protests that we're seeing now have kind of ballooned to represent all these all these issues beyond the bill itself. 
And for Carrie Lam, the the chief executive, and the rest of the Hong Kong government, why have they been so forceful in trying to push this through, even though more than a million people in Hong Kong have taken to the streets saying that they don't want this? So in in Hong Kong, the chief executive or the leader is effectively appointed by by China or sanctioned or or given China's blessing. Uh, And and many analysts believe that the chief executive um, ultimately has to please China and and, and Beijing authorities even before they they sort of please their own people. They have two masters, so to speak, the Hong Kong people and, and, you know, the Chinese. And so um, with Carrie Lam, I think people have been very sort of mixed and, and very divided on, on why she's taken the stand she has. Some believe that, you know, Beijing must be pulling the strings. They really want this extradition law. And so that's why she has, um, you know, held out and she's not fully withdrawn the bill like, like many protesters want her to. Others believe it's simply her personality, that she is... Uh, bureaucrat. She is pretty stubborn and she doesn't want to, quote unquote, lose face. Like she doesn't want to look embarrassed in front of Beijing, all her people. And she doesn't want to be seen as, you know, somebody who who kind of backtracks after pushing for something so hard. Um, Her government has said, though, that they will suspend the bill pretty much, you know, indefinitely. They haven't used the word withdraw, though, or fully retract or, or whatever, but they have said that they will indefinitely suspend the bill and they would accept the fact that, you know, Hong Kong people don't want it and, you know, they possibly can't reintroduce it later on. And for these protesters who have taken to the streets over the last month, who are they and and why do they feel so impassioned about this? Yeah, so I think in the early peaceful marches... We saw a real, you know, mixed bag of of protesters. You saw people from every walk of life. You saw businessmen, teachers, activists, um, students. Um, you saw people coming with their with their kids in strollers. You saw elderly in in, in canes. You, you saw people who were disabled. Really, honestly, anyone and everyone you can think of. But on Monday when things got really tense and heated and when protesters occupied the Legislative Council. Those protesters on the front lines, they were this very small, kind of hardcore group of young people. And, you know, for them, uh, they have been here, you know, just relentlessly kind of fighting this and and fighting for so many things in Hong Kong for, for weeks now. And I think... You know, many have said that the young here feel really hopeless. They feel totally disenfranchised, and and they feel like Hong Kong is no longer theirs. They feel like they they can't afford rents. Uh, the 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 job market is is pretty tight. And then you have 150 people moving in from the mainland every day. They feel like this place is no longer for them, and they feel like their culture is slowly being eroded. You know, bit by bit by bit, and and they really want to want to fight back on that, right? And and they they are tapping on on a deep well of of what they perceive to be disenfranchisement and and sort of difficulty in kind of living their day to day lives here in Hong Kong. So at this point, how is the Chinese government responding, and what do you think is going to happen next in all of this? So I think today we saw some really really harsh and hard language coming from Beijing. We saw them decry and, and condemn the these young people occupying the, the legislative building. They described the protesters as extreme radicals and basically, you know, 
sent pretty clear signs that this was not something that that they would accept. I think that analysts and and some some actually pro-establishment, pro-Beijing lawmakers are really fearful that the protesters may have crossed the line here, that they may have sent, you know, red flags, and and there's this worry that you know um, the space around Hong Kong might might start tightening. And on the other hand, the more optimistic folks think that Beijing will will sort of push Hong Kong authorities to try to offer some some carrots, so-called, to, to, to protesters, right? That they might tell them to, you know, try to ease the housing market a little bit, to build more public housing and, and try, try to counter some of the, the core issues or the root issues here that are more like social or economic and have, have maybe less to do with, with Chinese control. Whether or not that will be enough sort of really remains to be seen. And, and I think it's sort of anyone's guess now. Protesters are obviously exhausted. And I think that they'll have to see what they can do that will also not isolate or, or, or sort of turn off the majority of people here in Hong Kong, right? I think they still want the public to be on their side. I think the public still is, even after the occupation of the Legislative Council yesterday, they still see the kids as, you know, having taken a step that they needed to, right, to get the government to hear their grievances. I think it's, I think it's really unclear on both sides, both the government, uh, Hong Kong government, Beijing, as well as the protesters themselves. Shabani Matani is the Hong Kong correspondent for The Post. So last week, my colleague Rick Nowak and I, we were seeing a lot of discussions about statements made by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in which she called migrant camps at the U.S.-Mexico border concentration camps. The fact that concentration camps are now an institutionalized practice in the home of the free is extraordinarily disturbing. Um, And we need to do something about it. I am Luisa Beck, and I'm a reporter based in Berlin. And in Germany, of course, like the history of the Holocaust is still very, very much present. You can visit memorial sites of concentration camps. We decided to visit Sachsenhausen, which is a memorial site just north of Berlin. Luisa and Rick wanted to see how Ocasio-Cortez's comments were resonating in Germany, a country that has had to reckon with its own history of concentration camps turning into death camps during the Holocaust. What are we looking at now? What are these buildings? The entrance gate of uh, the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. My name is Astrid Ley, and I'm the deputy head of the memorial and the head of the archives and scientific department. You see, like, the motto... Arbeit macht frei, work will liberate you, inscripted in the door. You find this motto in Dachau, in Auschwitz, in many concentration camps. And behind it, the, the camp starts. What is it like to walk through there? It's chilling, I mean, in, in so many ways. 
there were plaques and kind of these boards, information boards everywhere. And more than 200,000 people were interned there between 1936 and 1945. And like tens of thousands of people were deliberately killed or they died as a result of forced labor and starvation and disease. And where are we walking now? Is this kind of the outskirts of the... Um, Actually, this is the Lagerstraße, the, the camp road. It is actually the road the prisoners had to take when they're being transported to the camp. They usually arrived at the train station, either the Oranienburg train station or later on the Sachsenhausen train station. And then they were marched by foot towards the camp. That experience of walking down there was, like to me, already felt very chilling just this kind of desolate patch of land. It's very, very depressing and very moving. And like, I, I don't really have words for it. It's a very moving experience. I think that one of the things about being at a concentration camp is that it's so somber and so serious. And it. I, and I wonder how you navigate bringing up conversations about things that are happening today when you're trying to kind of focus on all of these things that happened in that very place many years ago. So when you talk to people who were who either work there or are visiting the concentration camp, how did they talk about the prospect of thinking about current events in this space? We got kind of a variety of reactions. Before we entered, we were kind of hanging out in the lobby slash uh, like information center. And we met visitors there who were really open. And the people that you talked to, were they familiar with the comments that Ocasio-Cortez had made? And did they have thoughts about them? So the people we talked to had really mixed reactions to her statements. I think some people felt that their the comparison was really insensitive and that it's kind of muddying the history and the memory of the Holocaust and dishonoring it. And other people were defending her statements and saying that if we never want the Holocaust to happen again, then we have to call attention in a really radical way the what what's going on at the migrant camps. A few days later, after she made her initial comments, Ocasio-Cortez came on CNN and explained her statement more. This is an opportunity for us to talk about how we learn from our history in order to prevent it from ever happening in any form, at any step, whether it's a concentration camp or whether it's the, the, the final steps of that phase from happening and and. Even at the earliest steps, we have to make sure that dehumanizing and that never again means never again for anyone. I think, to me, this sounds really interesting because in many ways, like, this isn't the first time where there would have been an opportunity to think more about concentration camps and the Holocaust in relation to the present, right? Like, there have been multiple genocides since the 1940s in Cambodia and Bosnia and Rwanda, and that to some extent people have have spoken in those periods about comparisons between what was happening then and what was happening during the Holocaust. But it does seem like there is this shift to trying to draw those comparisons more now. Why do you think that that there are so many people coming to these camps now saying, like, like asking these questions that are more relevant to the present? I mean, across Europe 
I mean, across the world, there's been a rise of far-right parties, and people are aware of that. In Europe, there's also been a rise of incidents of anti-Semitism, and they've gotten a lot of media coverage here. In Germany, the far-right party Alternative für Deutschland, or Alternative for Germany, it's the biggest opposition party in the German parliament. One of the leaders made a comment last year in which he declared the World War II a, quote, Vogelscheiße, he said, which means bird shit. And so I think that the concern about the rise in anti-Semitism and also the the rise in these far-right parties and, and the sort of rhetoric that we're hearing from them in mainstream politics, I think that's that's really worrying people. And I think that that influences the questions. And that's what, what the staff there told us as well. It feels like in a lot of ways, Germany especially has had to do a lot of very public and very nuanced grappling with its past that I'm not sure has been done everywhere else, right? That, like, they have had a lot of conversations about the legacy of the Holocaust and have so many memorials and so many kind of public displays making sure that people remember that in a way that that I think is kind of different from how that has happened in America, right? Where, like, the legacy of slavery until recently, has been a lot more difficult to see a public presence or a public conversation about that. And so I'm wondering if, like, do you feel like this is part of the way that Germany deals with this kind of stuff, that they do encourage drawing comparisons between the past and the present and making sure that people understand that something like that could happen now or could happen in the near future? I think that Education about the past and about German history is incredibly important. Like, I, I think it's really important to Germans. They, you know, schools spend a lot of time discussing all the details of World War II history and of the Holocaust. I mean, you walk around the streets of Berlin and you are constantly facing it. I mean, in, in terms of seeing memorials, seeing statues, and being reminded of that, of that history. That's something that's really important to Germans. And and they put a lot of money into that, too. Like, there's a lot of money put into kind of historical and memorial sites. And and that, that receives funding and, and support. The historians and the people I've talked to, they're, they're very, very careful about drawing comparisons to the present. I think there's a sort of belief that if you talk about the history in a way that matters or in a nuanced and detailed way and you convey that history, it speaks for itself and people will draw those comparisons on their own. At Sachsenhausen, they've started putting on events and kind of public discussions about the influence of far-right parties on German remembrance of, of the Nazi past. So they've started hosting events like that. But you can see that in the exhibits and the way they talk about that past, there is a belief that if you if you really understand the history, you'll draw those comparisons yourself. And and you and um and and they're they're careful about equivocating the past with with things that are happening in the present or or drawing the comparison in a way that um, that doesn't get at like the nuance of, of a term like concentration camp and, and what that means in different contexts. Louisa Beck and Rick Nowak both report from the Washington Post's Berlin Bureau. 
And now, one more thing from reporter Hannah Sampson about a universal in-flight experience. Chrissy Teigen tweeted, and she tweeted to her many followers, are you more likely to cry on a plane when you're watching a movie? And her followers were like, yes. Yes, I am. So in my own recent example, I was flying between London and New York, and I was pretty tired, and I was watching on the basis of sex. When I was in law school, there was no women's bathroom. Which is a movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her early career. And it got to the end of the movie, and I was just, like, (laughs) crying. This is such a beautiful portrait of a marriage. And then I was like, what is happening? (laughs) Like, why is this happening? This was actually before Chrissy Teigen's tweet. But when I saw it, I was like, yes, I get it. And this just happened to me. So Hannah dug a little deeper to figure out why some people are particularly sensitive on airplanes. When we talked to psychologists, they explained that there are all kinds of factors going on when you get on a plane that lead to you feeling more emotionally vulnerable. And that can be the fatigue, the stress of security, the powerlessness that you feel when you're trapped on a plane, the worry about what's going to happen on the plane, but also the physical realities of air travel where you're going to be more dehydrated because the air is just less humid when you're flying. You're going to be absorbing less oxygen in your blood, again, because you're very high up at altitude, but the way that the air is pressurized, it's like you're at between 6,000 and 8,000 feet. All of that does things to your body to make you feel less good than you normally would on the ground. And it's not just about feeling weepy. Airplanes also affect your sense of taste. There have been studies by airlines and, and other experts that tell you that the way that you taste sweet and salty things on a plane is different than on the ground. So it's harder to taste sweet and salty things. Airlines have actually been trying to address these things and make better tasting tea and create meals that compensate for those like different taste thresholds. So if you are on a plane and you decide that you really want the tomato juice or actually the ginger ale, there is a scientific reason behind that. Those tastes are just more pleasing to you when you're flying. Hannah Sampson is a news reporter for By The Way, a new travel website from The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode is sponsored by the Aquarius Project podcast from the Adler Planetarium. When a meteor crashed in a great lake, these Chicago teenagers... Is this actually going to, like, go somewhere? ...joined forces with scientists... They specialize in asteroids. ...to find a way to hunt for space rocks... The so-called small bodies of the solar system... ...200 feet underwater. 
It's not impossible. It's, there's not a 0% chance. From the Adler Planetarium, the Aquarius Project podcast. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.